0: Every time when you know something dumb is gonna come out of your fucking mouth, you might not believe this, but it took me exactly sixty seconds for this hairstyle. Maybe even less. I know it's it's hard to believe because it looks so perfect from from this side, but look at it from the profile. Whoa, messy bun for the win! Yeah, flex it, show it off. God. <laughs> Will I ever take this seriously? No, there's no fun in taking it seriously. But something that I kind of want a serious opinion about your, is that your segue? Is that how you're segueing in? So, something that I actually want your opinion on is a couple of things. Especially if you're actually a lawyer that somehow got stranded and is listening to this episode now. In which case, welcome. I love lawyers. <laughs> lawyers might actually help me out a lot. If I ever get sued for just saying the F word a lot. Or in this case, to clarify a few things for me. First of all, why do we have statutory limitations? We have it in the UK as well. But US really has a problem with it. Like, how does it make sense to people? It just sounds to me like a child's logic. Like a child was like, you know what... They didn't catch me now, and if they don't catch me for the next five years, well, I'll never get grounded. And then that child went and applied this law. And apparently it's applied from, like, the 1800s. That was when Statute of Limitations was first used. And they still use it today. Like, are there no reviews for certain things within law? Or is it just because white men are presiding and then they can't be bothered to, like, review laws that exist from 1800s? Another thing that I don't fully understand, and I understand it more, don't get me wrong, but... Again, in certain cases, it just doesn't make sense because it's a peace stake and that's double jeopardy. Like, what do you mean somebody can't be tried for a crime again? I understand it from a point that, you know, state shouldn't be able to exert power and you shouldn't be able to be tried for a crime for like 10 times. But if people manage to prove that the jury was cursed that they were biased that they were following the news there need to be steps in line for somebody like Casey Anthony not to be walking the streets and creating a business and writing a book and talking bullshit while the whole world knows she killed her daughter like you know we need to put certain things in place another thing that i don't understand that is alfred plea that is the third thing, when it comes to criminal justice system, that will never make sense to me. Alfred Please, that thing when they release you from prison, but you technically accept that they had enough evidence to find you guilty, but you're claiming that you're innocent. So you're never taking that guilty consciousness off your mind once you're out. Like, what the fuck? And they're like, yeah, you're pleading guilty, but you're claiming innocence. What's the logic? You're pleading guilty by claiming innocence in a hope that you will be found innocent or to be released out of prison. So hey, yes, welcome to my rant. This is a podcast It's called By All Means Necessary. I'm your host, Maya, and this is the section that I just called a rant. It doesn't usually happen, but it's something I had to offload because I had it in my mind and I just don't understand it. So just in case, at a certain point in my life that this, while this podcast is online and available to everybody, a lawyer comes across this. Can you explain to me why are these things not like reviewed when the first time they were introduced was 1800s or like at some point in the past two centuries? Why are they not reviewed? Where does the court find the logic in those? Does it piss you off equally that it pisses the general public? All of that. But hey, we have another massacre in front of us. And this is the massacre that has changed laws once again. Remember how I covered Hungerford in the first episode in March? Well, if you don't, after listening to this episode, go listen to that one. Basically, that whole episode was on this massacre in the UK, in the place called Hungerford, where after it was committed, it brought change to certain guns not being sold any longer. So after recording it, I was like, wait, so what was the crime that prevented guns in general from being sold or introduced a gun license and the ability for people to still to this day, own only certain types of guns? And only if they're going to use it for a specific purpose, like, for example, hunting. So I looked into it, and it's a crime that actually happened in Scotland. But before we dive into that case, we have an expression of the day. And uh, again, just like many times before, it's kind of tied to this story. And it came yet again because, I don't know, is it because I'm on social media more and more, or it's because of how I chat with people. But usually when I pick these expressions, it's from like something I have heard like that week. So this is the expression, heal to die on. So, you know, like i chat with people and some people use this constantly. It's So like, oh, this is not a heal, I'm ready to die on. I'm like, I understand the concept. So I thought, you know, stop for a second, thought in my head, I was like, okay, I mean, this is logical, like, let's think logically about what the origin of this expression could be, and it must have to do with a battle. So I was like, okay, cool, put your smart ass on it, and do the googs, and find what battle it had to do with. So first of all, the hill to die on, this is an expression that alludes to the military practice of capturing or holding a hill or higher ground. But as I mentioned, it's usually used as a negative. So something along the lines like, this is not a hill I'm willing to die on or I'm about to die on when you're arguing or discussing a topic. But it originated from the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Yeah, you heard that right. We, we all know of that infamous hamburger hill so just for those of you who you know might not be super aware of this event the battle of hamburger hill was a battle of the vietnam war that was fought by u.s army and army of the republic of vietnam against people's army of vietnam and it was of course an infamous date in history 20th of may 1969 i knew it by heart i knew it without looking And the U.S. Army opted in for a frontal assault, so for people to go head on in front of the hill and fight the Vietnamese soldiers. However, after 10 days of fighting and deaths of hundreds of soldiers, the U.S. forces decided to give up on that same hill. And this was also heavily criticized by the U.S. public because of the operation, because how it was conducted, and because news of the battle contributed to the war losing favor from the American citizens. And that is where the expression originated from. Because they realized that this hill isn't so important for them to give up their lives on it, so they retreated, and hence, it wasn't the hill that was worth dying on. Imagine me teaching something like English literature in class. Yeah, that would be amazing, especially because I can't pronounce words that have TH in them, like TOG. to stop it okay we're going on to a very serious case okay and we are starting this case with none other than Andy Murray yep that Andy Murray the tennis player the infamous the number one the grand slam person don't make me use tennis terms for fuck's sake because Andy Murray not just went to the school where today's massacre is taking place but was there on that same day in 1996, when this took place, young Murray was eight years old, and he was in school with his brother Jamie, who was two years older. And they were in the school at the time and on their way to the gym class, to PE. But as they were headed to the gym, they heard really weird noise from that area. Immediately, the teachers had common sense, and they retreated the kids, and they sent them to the headmaster study and deputy head study and sent a teacher forward to investigate, to see what was going on in this gym. And everybody in this interview, and Andy himself, like, commended teachers and dinner ladies for doing an amazing job, because they didn't even notice there was something alarming happening, literally, like, few classrooms from them in this gym. Because they were told to sit down below the windows, they were singing songs, so to them it just looked like, oh, it's a different game, you know, we're just not looking through the windows, we're sitting beneath them, we are doing fun little games instead of being in class. To them, it must have seemed like, oh, it's a fun activity, like, we're not even studying, we're not even doing PE, this is great. Which just goes to show these teachers subscribe to so much more than teaching, because just, like, the way they maneuver this, instead of these kids actually realizing how grave the situation is that's happening at that same school, it's just good to to the teachers, because honestly, nobody fucking trains you and prepares you for this. And the way that they dealt with this in this whole story is beyond amazing. Jamie, who was a bit older at the time, described the sounds as if somebody was knocking the roof down with a hammer. So they could still hear the noise, but nobody thought this was gunfire. Somebody just thought, like, oh, somebody is performing some works, and that's why we are not going to the PE class right now. And their mom describes that, you know, once she picked them up, obviously, after school, because the two of them and their class was safe that that feeling that she had once she was driving them home that she had to like stop the car and just sort of turn around in her seat and explain to them what has actually happened because she knew it's going to be all over the place she knew that her son's were friends or familiar with other pupils that have died on that day. So she had to stop the car and just explain to them what has actually happened earlier that day while they were just in a classroom playing games with the teachers entertaining them. And as she turns around to explain this to them, she says, okay, the person who has done this has actually been in this very same car. You know the person that has committed this because you have attended the boys' clubs ran by him. On 13th March 1996, Thomas Hamilton broke into the gym of Dunblane Primary School. He was armed with four handguns and 700 rounds of ammunition and started shooting at a class of five and six year olds. Hamilton ensured to mark this case the deadliest mass shooting in British history by all means necessary by killing 17 and wounding 32 in just four minutes. What were his motives? On the day, Thomas Hamilton, who was the gunman who lived in the city, drove into the school parking lot around 9.30 in the morning, so the children were all already in class. And because it was still March, he didn't look completely out of place. I'm saying that because he had earmuffs on, but you know, it could have still been pretty cold, like It's around the time now, it's still pretty cold outside. However, what looked weird was the fact that he cut the cables on the phone call, cutting the connection between the neighbors and the police and the ambulance. What he didn't know is that he didn't cut the cables connected to the school, because those were closer to it, those were inside. Meanwhile, in the school, they have all just attended this assembly that took place between 9.10 and 9.30, and there were about 250 pupils attending that assembly together with teachers and school chaplain. And then the children have spread around. They have already changed into the P.E. gear before this assembly, and now they were headed to P.E., Meanwhile, this other teacher, Mrs. Harold, was talking to Mrs. Mayer for a few minutes, you know, just like chat between classes, and she was just about to go back to her waiting class to start the lesson, when this noise caused her to turn around. And this was speculated to be the sound of Thomas Hamilton firing two shots into the stage at the assembly hall, where they have just had this assembly, and also at the girls' toilet outside the gym. And if you remember, it was this commotion that caused another teacher to pull Murray's class back and pull them into the nearest classroom to get them away from the scene. But it was already too late for a class of 28 primary one pupils preparing for the PE lesson that were already inside that gym. So Hamilton enters the gym and he immediately opens fire. He first wounds the PE teacher, Harold, that was just sort of like outside speaking with another one, and teaching assistant, Mary Blake, and injured and killed several children. And as Mary Blake was shot in the head and both legs, she is crawling to this cupboard with several children that are in front of her trying to find shelter. As I mentioned, this attack is only going to take four minutes. So from entering the gym and walking a few steps, Hamilton already fired 29 shots with one of his pistols, has killed one child and injured several others. And four of these injured children with the PE assistant are now trying to rush and crawl towards this cupboard. Hamilton then proceeds to move to the east side of the gym and fires six shots as he walks, then another eight towards the opposite end of the gym. So he's basically covering the whole of that gym hall. And then he does a couple of things that are just one more colors than the other. He moves towards the center of the gym and fires 16 shots point blank at the children that he already incapacitated and that couldn't even crawl to these cupboards. And then a primary seven pupil just was walking by the gym and kind of decided to check out what is going on, what is all of this noise. So Hamilton shot towards him. This pupil was also injured, but he managed to run away. And at this point, I thought... Okay, probably if this guy like makes it to the trial, you know, he is probably going to try to use the... I snapped out of a defense, I didn't know what I was doing. But this for me kind of proved it immediately that he was very much aware of the surroundings, of where he was going, of how many lives he was about to take. And he was not going to stop until he was to run out of ammunition. And can you imagine the relief of the people because of what hamilton does next he appears to be leaving suddenly through the fire exit and they're like okay finally you know he has finally left we're still paralyzed with fear but should we leave this cupboard and try to help the others but what they realized is he has just briefly left to fire other shots in different parts of the school so he left and then fired four more shots towards the cloakroom of the library And he striked and injured Grace Tweedle, who was another member of staff at the school. And then this other teacher, Catherine Gordon, signaled her class to get down on the ground because she sort of spotted him through the window and she was like, he's going to fire here. And sure enough, he did. And one bullet actually passed through the chair where a child was just sitting seconds before. So now after he fired through that cupboard and he fired at the classroom, he goes back through that same fire exit and he returns to the gym. He now drops the pistol he was using and takes out one of the two of his revolvers. And I truly hope that nobody witnessed what he does next. Because he ends his four-minute massacre by putting this revolver into his mouth and committing suicide. So over the course of just a few minutes, he shot a total of 32 people, 17 of whom fatally wounded. All but one of those that were killed on that day were children aged 6 or under. Meanwhile, if you remember, we left the assembly hall and that assembly at like 9.30. It's 9.41 when the first call to the police is made. And it's made by the headmaster, Ronald Taylor, who was just alerted by assistant headmistress Agnes Olson that there is a possibility that she has heard shots and that there is a gunman in the school. And she said she heard screaming from the gym and when she was passing by, it seemed like she saw cartridges like next to the library, next to this classroom where he was shooting, so she went to alert somebody to call the police. And as soon as they heard the shooting stop, they went again back to the headmistress to alert them to call the ambulances, and then everybody rushed to this gym to try and help out. Now, I won't go into details of, you know, the green parts when it comes to the wounds and them being transported to the hospital. There is just one tidbit that I have written down, because I have found it, uh, only on one source, but that one source was Murderpedia. And as we know, Merpedia is law. So, it might not be true. I have a feeling it is dramatized. However, uh, it has been reported by this one single article that when Thomas Hamilton's body was dissected by the coroner, that they found that he had some broken ribs. And he then kind of rang... The ambulance officer like, hello, do you have anything to report? And this ambulance officer reported that he has given him a bit of a kicking when he saw the destruction that Hamilton has caused and that he now has to deal with. So I I don't want it to be true because there were no consequences, listen. So whether it was true or not doesn't really matter. But uh, I'm just saying if it did happen, did he deserve it? Yeah karma comes at you in this form or in the form of megan sitting with oprah and telling a bit about british monarchy (laughs) listen oprah this isn't a public appeal for you to have britney spears please if anybody can free britney it's oprah that's it that's all i have to say on the matter britney in that same exact chair Oprah kidnap her, kidnap her from the house, from her father, sit her in that chair and make the the world would explode. The world would not be able to deal with it. Like the honest truth, Britney, without her like meds, without anybody to just monitor, just pure truth. That's what the world needs right now. That's it. Cool. Back to the massacre of the day. So in the aftermath of the shooting, several people in the school have been commended for their heroic actions, including the primary head teacher, Ronald Taylor, and they were commended for the calm handling of the shocked pupils in the school. And then the two teachers, Mary Blake and Eileen Harold, who were shielded the children even though they were severely wounded themselves and were trying to get them to find cover in that cupboard. Queen Elizabeth traveled with Princess Anne to Dunblane to meet with the families of the victims and survivors. But of course, because this was dealing with murders of children and also because of how media is going to portray it and because it ended in suicide and everything... About the matter, it was heavily criticized by the media. And in the light of that, what came out was, of course, that the government tried to seal any documents about the event, any documents on post mortem, for example, and to prevent the publication. So when you first hear that, you're like, okay. Yes, that makes sense. But what documents are we talking about here? Because, yes, on one hand, you're, okay, protecting the identities of the children, protecting the details. You don't want the media to spin details of post-mortems and, like, how many times has your child been shot. Like, you don't want that. However, by doing that, they were also covering up certain documents about his previous criminal record. So, due to the pressure of the public and following the review, some edited versions of certain documents were released to the public in October 2005. And these released documents reveal that in 1991, there were complaints against Hamilton that were made to Scottish police and were investigated by Child's Protection Unit. And it came to light that he was actually reported for consideration of 10 charges, including assault, obstructing police, and contravention of the Children and Young Persons Act. And that there was absolutely no action taken. So before we speak about his background and how repetitive this is going to get, let me tell you a bit about Snowdrop Campaign, or rather how the gun laws have been changed. In the aftermath of the massacre, the Dunblane residents started snowdrop campaign, and it was named that because of snowdrops, which are the flower that is blooming in March when this shooting took place. And this is what you have to do, because this campaign gathered 750,000 signatures, and also a letter of a mother whose child died in the massacre was printed in the national papers. And people were not giving up. What came out to the public by the media was that not only that Hamilton regularly was buying different firearms throughout the past 20 years, but he was also legally licensed to own every single one of those weapons and the ammunition that he used in Dunblane Massacre. So as soon as the media printed this, you can just bet those calls started popping off to Downing Street, because again, this was 90s, like people like had numbers, yellow pages and all of that shit, people had numbers to like, you could call press office of the minister, like you, you, they were making their lives miserable, like nope, mm-hmm. 17 people died, 32 wounded, what are you going to do about it, do it now. And people were not waiting for nobody. In April 96, the group of concerned citizens went themselves to Downing Street to discuss the issue with the Prime Minister at the time, who was John Mayer. So only a few months later, the government passed the legislation that banned the ownership of all handguns over 22 caliber in the UK. And this law was amended in 1998 to include some smaller caliber handguns, and offering the monetary compensation if the people that already owned guns were to hand them to the government. These new gun laws also required anybody who was to apply for a firearm to also need two referees to testify and support them having a license. So as a direct result of the massacre, but more so of the people who have been fighting on behalf of the victims, the UK now has one of the strictest gun laws in the world and something that i have actually found out this week n- not related to like researching don blaine massacre but just like listening to this other podcast and if you follow me on tiktok i already posted about this because my mind has been blown i have not stopped talking about it ever since and that is that this podcast was just like chatting about the crime and then they said like oh yeah and this person XYZ went into a Walmart and bought a gun. And I was like, wait, they, they did what? <laughs> Americans doing what? <laughs> they just went inside Walmart, which is the equivalent of Asda in the UK, and uh, just bought a gun. How, how did that work out for you? Did you check it out with, you know, milk, other groceries, like your cereal? You just went in and you went out with a gun. Cool. Great. I don't think Americans will ever understand how wild we find this. Like, what I just go into Asda, it's like panna chocolate, yam, yeah, some milk, cereal, AK 47, like unimaginable. Like, it just does not, I cannot comprehend. I wonder, do you feel safe? Let me know, like, if your Walmart, like, sells guns and has like a full on section, because I suppose that they sell ammo, that they sell ammunition together with it. So, my thoughts, because of how much true crime I'm researching, what if somebody went in for a robbery and supply themselves with arms that are in the shop. Like, is there a case of that happening? Because in my mind, that's like a logical conclusion of selling guns in a shop. Like, somebody comes in, supplies themselves with guns there and drops the whole shop. And that is just a wild concept. So when I raised it on TikTok, certain people told me in their states... You go through the equivalent of DBS here in the UK, so like a criminal check, and basically you just fill out a form, and in certain states, it just takes like 5 to 20 minutes, they just like read out a form. I don't know, because they can't be contacting anybody in order to get that approved. Here, if you go through a criminal check, you wait for a few days or a few weeks sometimes to get like a certificate confirming this person has XYZ charges or no charges at all. I just don't understand. How is it so lenient? Like, how are the US gun laws this fucked up? So, yeah, you can always get in touch with me because I'm so fascinated by it. I will not stop <laughs> talking about this. If you know more on the topic, I'm on pod on Twitter and Instagram. And then email is podbam at gmail.com. Please get in touch with me, Americans. Talk to me about guns in Walmart. I'll read it out on the podcast. I'll I'll make a mini soap on it. Just guns in Walmart mini so because that's... My current fascination so on that note just a reminder to, to the british people how lucky we are that the legislation has been changed <sighs> and how sad it is that an event like this had to happen for it to change like i just can't go beyond that like why do we need to wait for something this tragic to happen to change gun laws and again then looking towards America, who has many more massacres, who has many more mass shootings, school shootings, how does this not resonate with anybody to change it there? I just cannot. There's a lot of things that I do not understand in today's episode. Just a lot of things. So due to this, in 1996, the rate of gun homicides per 100,000 people in the UK was 014 or around 80 to 90 per year, and by 2012, this number dropped to 0.02, or just 12 murders incited by guns. Another thing that happened in the aftermath were obviously post-mortem examinations. And when it comes to Hamilton, they were looking for any physical reasons that existed that could explain his behavior. Anthony Busatil, who was the pathologist in charge of examining all of the bodies, looked into Hamilton, and he was looking for evidence of drugs, alcohol, any brain tumor, like anything that could affect his brain, his thinking, basically. So also things like viral infections or any lead poisoning. Without result. So he concluded there was no physical cause for his behavior, and it could only be due to psychological factors. Which brings us to Thomas Hamilton and his background. Thomas was born in Glasgow, in Scotland, on 10th of May, 1952. And his mother was working for a hotel and was already divorced from his father when he was born. This is when it will get complicated to explain, but this is some Ted Bundy shit that we are about to (laughs) delve in. And if you know the case of Ted Bundy, you know exactly where it's going. So Thomas grew up never knowing his father, and he grew up in Glasgow East End with the mother's adoptive parents, and he thought they were his biological parents. And that is because of a couple of things. First of all, his mother was the illegitimate daughter of a widow, Rachel Hamilton. And then to prevent a scandal back then, the baby was given away to the childless couple that were relatives. And then this couple looked after Agnes until she was 19, and she fell in love with this bus driver. And then they had done the deed. Thomas was born. And 18 months later, the bus driver drove his bus, picked up another woman, and this second scandal had to be hushed up. So Agnes went back to her adoptive parents, and you guessed it, they told them that Agnes is his sister, not his mother. Totally, it won't be damaging when he finds out. There's no chance. No chance that this can be damaging to this guy when he finds out the truth. mm just like with Ryan from Hungerford Massacre episode, he was fascinated with guns long before, by the way, that he found out. From the very early age, since he was 12, he achieved academic success, like he was going to school, all of that, but on the side he became, like, obsessed with ammunition and guns. And in his teens, some would say it's too early, some would say, but he joined the Rifle Club and the Boys' Brigade. These youthful hobbies are soon to become his obsessions, both of them. These boys brigades, I think, was imprinted in his mind, and I will always find it the weirdest thing yet again, a plea to Americans to please email me or contact me on the socials to explain to me Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Do you not find it weird? does it do they still happen? Do they happen after the Oklahoma Girl Scouts incident? Do they happen just in general? What I find weird in this case is how Hamilton is going to completely pervert it and his whole life strive to be the Boy Scouts leader. And that's just something that I find so fucking strange. Because it's not that he's working with children. There's nothing strange with that. Like, you can be literally teaching assistant, teacher, teaching different levels, work with disabled children, work with that. But it's this particular fascination. It's not that he will ever go for, like, any other job or want to go for any other job. No. This is all he will want to do. And you're like, I have to wonder. If you just want to see kids in that environment, like in their gym shorts and shit, I have to wonder, if you can't see kids in any other context, if you can't, like, upskill or want to be a teacher or teaching assistant, you gotta wonder, why? Why do you just want to see children in the setting where they're wearing gym shorts? What is up in your head? Had a bit of a meltdown there, haven't we? So he, at first, accomplished his dream. At the age of 20, in 1973, he became assistant scout leader. But he did not last here long before investigations by two different councils started because the parents were literally left, right, and center calling these councils to say there was some alleged misconduct, that he kind of seemed to be inappropriate, or just to investigate it, just, you know, to check if there is anything weird with this new scout leader. And the parents did not complain for no reason. This guy... People have said that they would, you know how like neighbors sometimes kind of like think you're a creep. And then once they see you skedaddled out of house, they, you know, take a bit of a look of like what's visible to the surface on the outside in your house. And people have said when they look that they would see pictures of boys. They were not sexual, but they were not not sexual. First of all, Just the first problem ever is that these were not his children. That that, that should be the rule number one, the first red flag, the first issue in here. If you see through somebody's window and you know that they don't have children, you know 100%, and they have displayed around their room pictures of other young kids that's that's an immediate call to the police that you you don't have to think about it let me just tell you that just don't think about it just ask somebody to come into a welfare check and then track those boys down and interview them and see if they're okay they don't even have to be sexual They, they can be just literally pictures of boys in their school uniform but these kids were in their boy Scouts uniforms and stuff, but these people that were lurking and the parents said that these pictures kind of all focused on, like, them in swimming suits. The whole of this boy would be in the picture, but the focus more seemed on the groin area, which is disgusting. And not just that it was disgusting, but it was taken without the children's, and more importantly, without the parents' consent, because those kids were minors. And then every time anybody in the clubs would try to question him, they said that their vibe was he had this imposing feeling. Like... He thought he was the shit. He thought, like, I am like the scout leader. I am the boss in in my own world, okay? But they all thought that he had kind of a persecution complex, or just delusions that he is the best and that he is doing a great job, and then he would just waffle and give them this bullshit talk of, you know, how he's not guilty, how he has the right because he's the boy Scout leader to intervening into these kids' lives, to take pictures of them, all of that shite, and would just be one of those wafflers who, like, could talk for an hour until, like, they bore you and just talk about how great they are. So this woman who met with him in 74 said she was subjected to a long and rambling discourse. Quote, I formed the impression that he had a persecution complex, that he had illusions of grandeur, and I felt his actions were almost paranoia. End quote. So in 74, a couple of things happen. If you remember, this is when he's only 22 years old, right? Right, right, right. His world is about to crash down because, first of all, further complaints happen by the parents in this summer camp where he's teaching, and they are complaining that not just that he's a full-blown creep but he is also teaching them how to use rifles and handguns because they're of the appropriate age he has decided he has fucking decided and he's also forcing them to engage in perverted activities and then paying them to keep quiet Because these were different times, we don't have any more, like, information on what exactly is there, and obviously he's going to deny all of that. So in 74, he was asked to leave the scouts. Another thing that happened when he was 22 years old is that he finally discovered that his sister is actually his mother, And as you know from, like, Ted Bundy's story, he will not take this lightly either. Even if it happened on its own, but because it happened with this other thing that made him feel super important, the shit is about to go down. Somehow, though he manages to spill because again he was a talker he knew how to just waffle without saying much and he knew how to gain sympathy from the people so he was able to raise support by different people in Sterling, in Dunblane in different towns where the parents would send their kids to this scouts club so some of these parents weren't buying into this and they just thought this was some gossip like their kids were perfectly fine none of their kids was complaining about any of this which as we know when it comes to groomers they have their preferred children they have the kids that they just target and then ignore all the rest it's completely normal that certain children would not complain about something like this because maybe they have not experienced it but maybe somebody is having it every single day that this guy is just targeting them And while he's complaining, trying to gain sympathy, trying to turn these parents against the police and to help him, like, get his scout jobs back, he's also buying firearms. Progressively, as the years would go on, every couple of years he would get, like, another firearm. And he joined different gun clubs to improve his skills and would practice diligently. I mean, if you already think you have a dream job in being like a Boy Scout leader, why practice guns? Why is that an inevitable part of the experience that you need to translate then to those children? He never reflected, never stopped to reflect. And literally everybody in this neighborhood is aware of all of this. Like, the detective sergeant, who was the former head of the Central Scotland's police at the time, even wrote a report recommending that Hamilton's firearm license gets revoked because of his behavior, but no action is taken in response to this because there was no concrete evidence of any wrongdoing. Like, what does the trial... I'd like to think that nothing like this would happen today because what does he need to do? Like, why are we waiting until he, what? Sexual assault? Somebody molests a child to react? If all of the red arrows are pointing to the guy because all of them are literally red flags, he's a creep. Let's prevent it rather than react to it. Four Scottish police forces investigated him after the parents made at least 12 complaints and accusations. And each of the detectives failed to find a case that could stand up in court. And as I mentioned, because of the belief that, well, if not all of the kids are complaining, there might not be anything wrong here. Throughout the years, between 74 and 96, when this massacre took place, he would kind of go on and off. Like, he would be able to gather these Boy Scouts and, like, continue with his boy clubs in certain areas. Then he would be banned out of some. So he was just constantly on and off. And he was just fighting off these allegations and fighting off the police. But the parents were helping out in certain instances as well. For example, in one instance, they banned the school to close a youth club because the rumors on Hamilton were vague or they should have been heavily discounted and they said that his treatment was unfair and unjust and the council was just told to drop the ban and allowed him to have a youth club in certain areas at times. In 1983, actually, 70 of the parents signed a petition claiming that Hamilton was the victim of malicious backstabbing. So yet again, they have said that it's all based on rumor, they don't have any evidence, which, to be fair, they didn't. However, I would call pictures in a flat evidence, but maybe he hid them at this point, maybe that is just rumor in itself. Don't get me wrong, if this guy was actually to be wrongfully just slandered over and over again, yes, that would be the worst. Like, for somebody to try to, like, clear his name for 20 years while he has done nothing wrong, sure, that would be the worst. But then, what's the other extreme? But then, where has this story ended? It has clearly had certain red flags. I refuse to believe that the fact that he was brought in an okay family and didn't realize that his sister was actually his mom, that that's all that there is to this. Because he seems to have had two fascinations, guns and children, which resulted in him finally combining these two in one gruesome act. To just add soul to the wound, because I think we all agree when we say that this was calculated as fuck, so... My thought was, but wait, how did he know which school to target? How did he know at what time? And exactly where he would do the most damage in the least amount of time? Well, he knew it because he worked for that school. He applied to work there voluntarily, actually, but was turned down. But between 70s and mid-90s, he ran approximately 16 boys clubs. And one of those was held at the Dunblane Primary School gym, where he would eventually commit the massacre. And yet again, the pattern repeats itself. These clubs were for boys between the ages of 7 and 11, the activities were target practice, swimming, uh, gymnastics, football, and the popularity would grow, so to the point that at certain points, these clubs would have as many as 70 boys, but over time, the numbers would decline because of his behavior. It's not even just that he was a creep, but also he was not qualified to teach these sports. If you look at this guy, like, your first thought is maybe, like, a history teacher or something along those lines. I'm like, I just can't believe just looking at this guy that he has an athletic bone in his body for somebody who is, for years, trying to be this Boy Scouts leader and apparently teach them how to do sports. During those years, of course, they found other pictures of these boys in bathing suits all over his house, because they did raid his house, but they couldn't consider them pornographic because the boys were not naked. And Hamilton said himself that the boys were wearing particularly scanty swimsuits. So it's it's the boys' fault for them wearing swimsuits at the pool probably, because that's where he went to train them like a fucking pervert. So those allegations were just dismissed and they couldn't consider it pornographic. With so many of these cases, I would not be surprised if he died a fucking virgin because he never had any close relationships with any adults. He was very uncomfortable around women. Doesn't come as a surprise, but was super comfortable around the boys and nobody raises any panic alarms another great heterosexual, say it with me, just every time, it's another great heterosexual, just just cover under their fucking mask, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm super uncomfortable about the people of any sex around me my age, but I'm great with children, like, yeah, yeah, that, that has a name, sir, that has a name, and nobody in his life had anything really nice to say, they described him as deceitful, suffering from delusions of grandeur, that he was abusive, domineering, and would usually attack immediately if he would even try to spot, like, somebody was about to complain. It's like, no wonder he couldn't form a single relationship. How would you form a friendship? He's <laughs> just, like, immediately on the defense. It's like, hey, Maya, how are you? No. I did not do it. Like, what? I just asked, like, how are you do-? No. You try to ruin my day. I see it. I saw it in your eyes. Like, yeah, let's not talk to this woman ever fucking again. He was also anti any establishment, really, and had a persecution complex. And also during this investigation, it was established that he must have been planning this massacre for quite some time, because prior to the 13th of March 1996, he stepped up the rate of the purchase of his ammunition and also firearms. And also now he was at these rifle gun clubs at all times. And they have testified that he was working on the accuracy more than ever. And he visited his mother, you know, the sister-mother relationship, lovely, uh, only the night before the massacre. And she claimed that her son just seemed okay. There was no indication of anything that was going to happen. Because at that point he was probably calm. He just knew that in his head he had to do this. But what I would say is truly the point of no return for Thomas Hamilton happened a week before his visit to his mom. Because the Wednesday before the massacre, he posted the copies of letters explaining his grievances to BBC Scotland, the Scotsman, and every single person that he called the enemy that filed these allegations against him and branded him a pervert. And it's only then that he picked out four out of the six guns that the British law allowed him to have at the time, and set off for the primary. Like, imagine, six guns is what you were allowed to own. For what fucking reason? Like, what are you going to use six different guns for at one time? Nothing nothing good. He doesn't stop there. He sent 14 A4-page letters to a few more people. Actually, to a couple of Dunblane parents, to the Queen herself, to the council officials, and to the Secretary of State for Scotland. And of course, the main theme was his dismissal from the scouts, how people in dunblane were jealous of the success of his boys' clubs, that's what he told in the Queen's letter that she discovered later, how these were the rumors that he was a pervert, these were the whispers over the past 20 years of youth work that caused him untold damage, that these lies have been passed to councillors, social workers, and the police. And he cited, and this is so fucked up, if you're not aware with um, the murder of James Bulger, like, this kid, really young kid, was literally, like, kidnapped by the other two kids that were a bit older than him. I listened to it a while ago, but basically, if I remember right, he was kidnapped from the shopping center and then abused by these two boys and killed... And these boys were sent to prison, but everybody was super lenient to them and all that nonsense. But he said that he has done this because the case of James Bulger proves that the boys need good discipline and it's all the more important. So this is why he's doing it, so that a crime like James Bulger crime doesn't happen again. Like, it's not really your responsibility. Some would say that you might have a problem of delusion of, like, the power that you have to change the world in this way, but, you know, some would say that. And he would finish these letters by saying that it was outrageous, that he was a victim of a sinister witch hunt which was alarming parents and destroying his youth group. And that was what I thought was the point of no return, because if you write up 14 letters and you just don't stop yourself, but instead go and pick up four of your guns, yeah, I think that you might have convinced yourself at that point what your motivation for doing this is. So speaking of that, let's go and discuss what we think were his motives. So in these letters, if we were to believe him, it is the mistreatment that he has gotten throughout the years. And again, as I said, if this was to be true and this guy has been slandered for 20 years, I can see how that would lead somebody to snap. As I mentioned, this was premeditated, so I can't see how you can't stop yourself or see how what you're about to do is completely wrong. Also, I'm sorry, but why shoot the children? I mean, why shoot anybody? Yeah, don't commit true crime in general, but why are you shooting the children? The children haven't done shit to you. Like It's the parents that have made your life technically a misery. Yeah, the kids have said to parents how you treat them. It's the parents, it's the councils, it's the police. Why are you taking the fucking rage on the innocent? That's the part that I'm like, that you're just the worst scum of the earth. So as we know from the previous two episodes, I think... This is definitely to do with him taking over some control. But here, he, in his head, and from what he was saying, we can see the reason, because his reputation was completely ruined. He couldn't find a job anywhere in any neighboring towns and cities. Don't get me wrong, he could find a job in literally anything else, but this is what he wanted to do, so he couldn't deal with himself, he couldn't, as I said, upskill, change profession, working somewhere else, upskill to be a teacher in a different subject. No, he couldn't do any of that. And in these letters, he went on to complain how these rumors damaged his clubs, his public standing, and prevented him ultimately from earning a living. And he continued to write that his attempts to enlighten people have proved time-consuming, expensive, and ultimately futile. So basically, he just decided to give up. Yet again, then, if you decided that this is going to end... In you committing suicide, why not just do that? Not encouraging any of it, but you have already sent a message. Like, you have sent letters to everybody. You didn't have to do any of this, but that's what massacres are really all about. Regaining that last bit of control before you just destroy everybody's world and your own. But whichever way you want to see it, whether you want to see it as revenge, whether you want to see it as one last mission and regaining of control, what I think tells more about Thomas Hamilton than anything else is that in his letter to the Queen, he actually specified that he is using this as the last resort, hence why he's writing to the Queen, to salvage his self-esteem. So he thought, after he has done this, that the Queen is going to come out To the public and say what a kind hearted man he has been. Let's clear his name of everything he has done. In what universe? In what universe is like anybody going to come out with that statement? I think that tells you a lot about Thomas Hamilton and how people might have been right. Like, this might not have been a slander against the guy because. If everybody nails to describe you as this egoistic, narcissistic human being who thinks he's above everybody else, and then you prove to be that, what should make us not believe the second part of that story? But that is the case of Thomas Hamilton and Dunblane Massacre. Let me know what you think the motives are. Do you think I was off somewhere? Did you see through the lines? Did you read through the lines and saw something else? This case is obviously huge and I didn't like get to mention every single detail and I tried to avoid the most gruesome ones because the story in itself is just so disturbing and disgusting and just hopefully nothing like this would have happened today not just because of the gun controls but because of the fact of how we would see something like this and how possibly today we would see it as, yes, pornographic content to an extent that he had all over his house. Like, these are not your children, sir. But let me know what you think about the motives. You can always find me at Dead band Poet. You can tweet me, you know, the Bird Bird. You can <laughs> what the fuck? You can DM me on Instagram, or if you're watching this on YouTube, by all means, Necessary Podcast channel, it's always in the description, so you can always click on the link. Watch for the images of the story, and then always drop the comments about what you think, what should I cover next. There's a case suggestion form there as well. I just bombard you with the good stuff. And now, you're gonna be like, listen, Maya, what about the other two weeks in March? I bet this bitch wasn't ready. Because that's who I am, and you know me well, but guess what? This time, I was ready. I was so ready. (laughs) So in order to, like, pacify the rest of this much and for everybody to just cool off because we've had the two months of just the heaviest cases, the next two cases I'm bringing you uh, for the last two weeks so much are going to be light. They're going to be jokes, right? I mean, it's still true crime, but, but jokes. Oh my god, but look at that. Time really flies when you're having fun. I can never say that with a serious face. Did anybody else's parents always say that only when you're trying to get out of like the most boring situation? (laughs) Because mine have, and every time I would just be like... (laughs) I don't want to laugh, but we're going home. We're about to go home, and I'm a homebody. Born homebody, let's do this. Let's get out of this person's house, because this was weird. What was this? Social interaction. So you're going into your next Zoom call. Ah, social interaction. You love it. You're going to love it. This week, if you could do me a favor, right? And uh, start that conversation from the beginning of this video about... All of these different laws that you might not understand. How how is that for small talk, Karen? Instead of the most boring shit, like how was your weekend? No, let's get your opinion on everything. Death penalty. Last meals. (laughs) Special meals. What do you think about this? Alfred Plea. Guns in Walmarts. What are your opinions? Did you know that this thing existed? Let's start, let's see what you are made of, what triggers you, what would you do if you saw your neighbor has pictures of children that are not there, it's all over the world, what would you do? Statute of limitations, double jeopardy, what are you thinking about these important topics? Because they're not gruesome, so you can't tell me they're gruesome, you can't tell me I'm being like a true crime fake. No, it's actually me getting your opinion on the world and then me judging you on it. I would actually really say to start off with the guns in Walmart, because that's the thing that people will probably have an opinion on. And then you can take that opinion and be like, "Mm, I'm not sure I really agree with you. And also just make notes on them, you know, so that you might report them to the police one day as like one of the red flags. But yeah, (laughs) basically what I'm saying is, yes, collect any red flags that your colleagues might demonstrate in the Zoom calls. That is exactly what I'm saying. Because if you collect the red flags, You also, if you do something about those flags, then what do you do? You prevent something like Dunplay Massacre from ever happening again. You prevent rather than react to the story. And by doing that, you keep making the world a better place. One motive at a time. God damn it. Wow. Okay. Hey, my knee still has reflexes. If anybody has wondered. (laughs) Where's the outro music, Bench? Leave it. Play it. Hit it. Hit it. Hit it. Are you ready? <laughs>